Good evening. Please open up to Nahum. Nahum, if you would. We're doing a series through the prophets, and uh, we're doing one prophet per week. And now that seems fitting, now that we're in the minor prophets, because they're much smaller. So we're looking at three chapters, and uh, this book is much, much more digestible than the other books we've gone through, like Isaiah, which is much larger. But now that we're in the minor prophets, the minor prophets is uh, often referred to as the book of the twelve, because uh, when you read the minor prophets, you hear the same themes over and over and over and over again twelve times. And they're composed in such a way that they're actually supposed to be read together. That's why it's called the book of the twelve. So we're hearing some of the same themes, some of the same echoes, but that's a good thing, because we need many reminders. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll look at the book of Nahum together. Oh Lord, we come before you in trust and in obedience. You have charged your church, you have charged men throughout the ages. Preach the word in season and out of season. Preach the word. Teach the whole counsel of God. So this is our small meager effort at obeying you, and we ask that you would use our, our efforts, our study, and our energy to edify your church as we seek to teach your counsel, your whole counsel, to your church. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the book of Nahum, and we pray that we would be humbled by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The summary of the book of Nahum can be found in Nahum's name. If you ever ask yourself the question, what is the book of Nahum about? The summary is simple. Nahum the prophet, his name means compassion. Compassion. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Nahum is the compassion of the divine warrior God, the Lord Yahweh. While the majority of the prophet's content is, content is dedicated to the destruction of Nineveh, as we will see here in a minute, Nineveh was one of the greatest cities in Assyria, the overtone in the book is the Lord's compassion for his people. It's surprising, but the Lord's compassion is the only hope for Judah, that is Zion, the people of God. God's people watch in the book of Nahum as the oracle unfolds. And as the oracle unfolds, it's almost as if the, the scene of God's judgment is unfolding right before them. And at the closing act, at the very end of the book, right before the curtains are about to close, what we see is God promising the destruction, the destruction of Nineveh. Why don't you turn over? To the very last verse. Chapter 3, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. In this, God breathes a final promise to Assyria, to Nineveh in particular, and God says, Nineveh, you're as good as dead. And what happens? As the people of God watch, as they watch this final scene and as the curtains close, they stand and erupt 
with praise and clapping. You might even say joy. It's a sobering thought to think that people would gloat over someone else's condemnation and judgment. But we need to remember that Assyria was not only an enemy of everyone around them, but Assyria was an enemy of God. And while God used them for a moment, a small moment in history, God has the prerogative to judge them and to judge them righteously. God's people erupt in praise, clapping their hands over Assyria, but it's ultimately not Assyria and their destruction that they're clapping for. They're clapping in adoration and praise of God. So we're going to be looking at the book of Nahum briefly. We're going to look at the historical setting of Nahum in your outline, historical setting, the thematic outline in Nahum, and applications from Nahum. Oftentimes it's difficult to find out exactly where the prophets are in history, so I have an outline right there for you on your page. We're going to walk through this just so we know where we're at. In 732, Assyria started to attack Israel, and that is the northern tribe, the northern ten tribes of Israel. So they started to slowly attack Israel in, in creeping in past their borders. And it wasn't until 722 that Assyria finally completely demolished Israel, destroyed Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, and dispersed the southern ten tribes. Um, yes, no, I'm sorry, northern ten tribes of Israel. So it might say southern, but it should be, this should be northern in your outline. These are the northern ten tribes called Israel. Assyria disperses them. In 701, Assyria continued moving northward and inevitably came to Jerusalem, and they besieged Jerusalem. But if you recall the book of Isaiah, Isaiah actually talks about how Assyria was defeated by an angel of the Lord. 144,000 of their troops were defeated, and they never ended up taking Jerusalem. It was by the sovereign hand of God that Judah was not taken. In 664, Assyria destroys an Egyptian city, one of the main Egyptian cities called Thebes. And this is actually documented in the book in chapter 3, verse 8. It talks about the destruction of Thebes. It's a historical fact. The reason that I bring that up, and I think that it's significant for the historical setting of Nahum, is because the next significant date is in 612 B.C. when Assyria was destroyed by the Medes and Babylonians. So somewhere between 644 B.C. and 612 B.C., Nahum prophesies about Assyria's destruction. It's in this context. Israel, the northern ten tribes, have already been destroyed. They're gone. Assyria has already dispersed them and scattered them, which we'll see here in the book. But who remains? Who remains? It's the southern tribe of Judah. And Judah is trying to survive, and Judah is wondering, what is going to happen to us? Assyria destroyed Israel. Are we going to be destroyed as well by by Assyria? And God answers Judah here in this book. So the book is written to Judah, and it's concerning the destruction of Assyria. Now let's look at the thematic outline in Nahum. Nahum, if you read it in the original language, if you have that gift or if you want to dive into it, you'll see that it has a poetic flow to it. And I did not uh, separate it that way. I thought it would be easier for us to understand thematically. So we're going to be looking at it chapter by chapter, looking at it thematically. So there are three chapters. The first chapter talks about how Judah is over Nineveh. second chapter is talking about how Babylon is over Assyria. And the third chapter, I would summarize it as Lord over all. And for that reason, I think the whole book of Nahum is pointing to the fact that the Lord is over all. Lord over all. So diving in chapter 1, 
verse 2. What we see here in this first section in verses 1 through 8 is that the Lord is vengeful. Verse 2, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. We see vengeance repeated three times. Three times, which indicates importance. So as we consider the character of God, which we'll think about here in a minute, what would we take from the book of Nahum? What would the book of Nahum teach us about the character of God? Well, we ought to think of God as a God of wrath and vengeance. We'll explore that in our application. The next section unfolds, and we see that the Lord interrogates Assyria, starting in verse 9. This is a shift. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, referring to Judah. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you come one, came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. As God interrogates Assyria, he's not only interrogating Assyria as a nation, but he's also interrogating one person in particular. And that one person is the king. The king in particular of Assyria has set himself over and above God in pride and in arrogance, which we'll see here in a moment. But as the book unfolds, chapter 1, the third point in chapter 1 is that the Lord redeems. There's a shift again in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, Though they are full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. What the Lord is referring to here is how he used Assyria to humble Judah. And now he's saying, I will no longer do that. I'm actually going to deal with Judah or with, with Assyria in such a way, continuing in verse 13, that now I will break his yoke off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated in the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is a promise to the people of Judah that Assyria is not going to be a problem for them anymore. It's almost like Big Brother comes, and Big Brother says, you can no longer pick on my little sister. This isn't going to happen anymore. It happened for a little while, and I allowed it, but not anymore. And God puts an end to it right here. And the people of Judah erupt in praise and exaltation and worship, which we'll get into in application But moving through the book thematically, looking into chapter 2, we see that the Lord scatters. The Lord scatters. Chapter 2, verse 1. The scatter has come against you, man, the ramparts. Watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Second, the Lord restores. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Again, what is happening here? There's a reference to the destruction of the northern ten tribes, that is Israel. And there's a a reference to also how Judah and Jerusalem has also been oppressed and plundered. But why the reference to Israel? And why why the reference to restoration? It's because God is going to restore Judah 
so that he has a remnant, so that he has a people for himself, that the people of, of God will not be utterly cut off. And I think that there's a reference to that as well in chapter 2, verse 1. There's a question in chapter 2, verse 1 about the scatterer. Who is the scatterer? Well, what did the Assyrians do to Israel? Think about it for a minute. They scattered them. So we could see this as a way of God saying, oh, look, you are the scatterer, so now you should, uh, you should man up your fences and get ready for war because I'm going to come against you. But really, what, it, what it's saying here is that God is the scatterer. And God is going to scatter the Assyrians just like the Assyrians scattered his people. So they should get ready. They should man, man their, their weapons and stand on the watchtower and be ready because God is going to come with vengeance, as we saw in chapter 1. Continuing through chapter 2 in our thematic outline, in verses 3 through 13, we see that the Lord battles. The Lord battles. Look at verse 13 in particular. Behold, this is God speaking, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. The Lord is the one who battles. And how does he battle? Well, in chapter 2, we see that the Lord battles actually by using the Babylonians. The, the Lord uses nations and armies in order to establish himself as God over the universe. God uses surprising means in order to establish his supremacy. It's the Babylonians over the Assyrians. But then it moves into chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, we see that there are woes, which really indicates a warning. Chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheels, galloping horse and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corses, corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies talking about Assyria and how the, the war will be devastating to Assyria and how Assyria will ultimately be destroyed. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, we see not only does the Lord warn, but then he reminds. And the way that the Lord reminds is he actually talks about many cities in the past. Look at verse 8. He says, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, that is her... Her fortress was a sea, and water was her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put, put in the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. The Lord reminds Assyria and says, look at what happened to Thebes. Do you think that what happened to Thebes was because of your military might? And the Lord essentially says to Assyria, no. Any nation that rises, any nation that falls, happens because of my decree, happens because of my sovereignty. And the Lord reminds Assyria of this reality. And the reminder comes with judgment. Look at 14 through 19. At the end, not only in chapter 3 does the Lord warn the Lord reminds, but the Lord also wins. Look at verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. 
Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will be fire, uh, there will the fire devour it. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust spread its wings and fly away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like the clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. The Lord wins. And really what the Lord is doing here in the very end of the section is he's mocking Assyria. He's mocking Assyria. And the way in which he's mocking Syria is saying, you know that my judgment is coming. What should you do? Get ready. Get ready. Look at verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Get ready. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread your mortar. Take hold of brick and mold. Essentially what he's saying is he's saying, get ready for war. Get ready. Work as hard as you can. But at the end, is it going to pay off? Is it going to matter? Is it really going to do anything for them? At the end of the war, absolutely not. The Lord has already pronounced judgment, which means it's done. They're finished. And God continues mocking them in the way in which he mocks them as he says, what what happened to all of your great men that you used to boast about? He says, what happened to your merchants? Nineveh was a great city that had many merchants and they would boast about their economy. And God says, what happened to your economy? What happened to your merchants that you used to boast about? Where are they at? And he says they're like grasshoppers and locusts that scatter when the sun comes up because no one knows where they are. Where are they? God asks. Now how about the princes and the strong mighty men? Where are they at? They too are compared to grasshoppers and locusts. And the question that God asks is, where are they? Where are they? And then further, there's a final nail in the coffin in verse 18 to the king. Your shepherds are asleep. Where are your shepherds? Where are your great men? Where are your leaders? O king, where is your power now? You thought that you were so great. You thought that you could compare yourself with me. Look at you now. And what happens? The people of God erupt and praise at the wonder of what God has done to one of the greatest nations that the world had ever seen. Exile, destruction, death, never-ending exile. The people of Assyria would never be a people again. That's why there is no easing their hurt and their wound is grievous. This is the outline, the thematic outline in the book of Nahum. I hope that that helps you understand the book better, what it's about. But let's examine for a moment how it applies to us. Let's pull out some applications. So we'll move into the application from Nahum. And really what I wanted to do here is I wanted to focus in on six characteristics of the Lord overall. So we're just going to reflect upon our God that we serve, and we're going to think about how this applies to us this evening. 
six characteristics of the Lord in the book of Nahum. Number one, verses one through two, the Lord is vengeful. Vengeful. We'll read this again. Look at verse two. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on the adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Think about this for a moment. We already reflected on it. The fact that he repeats it three times demonstrates that this is important about God's character. We talk about Isaiah 6 a lot. Holy, holy, holy. Three times God calls himself holy. Here in Nahum, God refers to himself as vengeful three times. But his vengeance is directly connected with his holiness. Why is God vengeful? Why is God the avenger? It is because of sin. Continue into verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. God brings vengeance because sin needs to be, de- be dealt with. But do- does God do this quickly? Is God a, a trigger-happy God who just wants to demonstrate his vengeance? No. What stands out when we think about the vengeance and uh, God as a, character, as a characteristic, him being an avenger, what stands out is his compassion. The real question is, why does it go past chapter, or chapter 1, verse 2? Why does it go past, I'm an avenger, I will bring vengeance, I will avenge? Why does it go past chapter 1, verse 2? It's because the Lord is slow to anger. It's because he's compassionate It's because he's merciful. And that's why I think that Nahum's name means compassion. He's the perfect person to bring this reminder to the people of God. That God brings vengeance because God is perfect. God is holy. But in the midst of vengeance, God is patient. And he waits and he's slow to bring about his vengeance and his wrath. Number two we see in the book of Nahum is that God is good. God is good. Look at verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The fact that God communicates, the fact that God is demonstrating himself to, to us through the book of Nahum is a clear indication to us that God is good in and of itself, that he wants to be known and that he wants to know us as well. God extends grace and mercy to his people, and it actually says here in this passage that he knows those who take refuge in him. So in particular, God's characteristic of goodness is expressed to those who find their, their strength and their refuge in God. So opposed to Assyria, who was comparing themselves with God, who is comparing themselves to God and saying, we are gods in and of ourselves, and the king in particular putting himself over and above God, what do they get? They get vengeance. But how about the one who humbles themselves before God? The one who comes before God with contrition and repentance because of sin. Like what we see here, the people of Judah doing. What do they receive? They receive the goodness, mercy, and compassion of God. Which leads into... Our third application here, which is merciful. God is merciful. Look at 114. The Lord has given commandment about you, referring to Judah. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods, or yeah, from the house of your gods I will cut off 
the carved image of the metal in the image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. And then here's what he says in verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God is merciful to his people, Judah, because they are demonstrating humility, because they're finding their refuge in God. God's holiness is manifested in these two ways, that he is either vengeful or he's merciful and compassionate to the humble for those who find their refuge in him. And further, he's merciful because he delivers his people from the bondage of slavery, from the fear of slavery, for what purpose? In order to worship. He delivers his people in order to worship. Delivers his people from the fear of slavery in order to worship. What does that sound like to you? He, he says, celebrate your feasts. What does it sound like? There are three feasts that come from the book of Exodus. And the three feasts represent the people coming before God and remembering all that God has done for, for them and delivering them out of Egypt into freedom. You seeing the comparison here? Just like God delivered the people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, God is doing the same thing as an echo in the book of Nahum. God is delivering his people from the hands of the Assyrians and he's delivering them for a particular purpose. He's delivering them so that they might worship him. Does this have any other themes in the, in the Bible? Can you think of any other ways that this might be expressed? Think about what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. As he's talking about the grace of God, he says, What shall we say then, brothers? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? No. No. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And if you have been buried with Christ, you also will be resurrected with him? But then what does he say later on in the chapter? He says, at one point in time, when you were in bondage and slavery, just like the people of Judah, when you were in bondage and slavery to sin, what were you free to? What were you free to? You were free to do whatever you wanted. You You were in bondage to slavery, which meant that you would live in sin. But then what does he say after that? He says, when you became a slave of Christ, now what can you do? You can continue to do whatever you want to do, but what do you want to do now? You want to worship. You want to honor and obey, not just externally, but from the heart internally. You see that the New Testament continues this theme of liberation, that we have been delivered not from a physical nation, but from the spiritual kingdom of this world. We've been delivered from the power of sin and death, from the domain of Satan, and now that we've been delivered, we've been delivered into Christ, into his kingdom. For what purpose? For worship. For worship. So these words, as Nahum preaches them, they apply to us. Keep the feasts. Celebrate your feasts, for you've been delivered. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace. These are the exact words that the Apostle Paul uses when he's talking about the liberation that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been free. You're no longer in fear. You're no longer slaves. You've been liberated. You're sons in Christ. 
Live like sons. Celebrate. Rejoice. Live by faith. Worship. Fulfill your vows. Never again. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And brothers and sisters, we can take assurance and confidence in this is because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's a spiritual kingdom. We do not live based on the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of Christ. God is merciful in giving us this kingdom. Application number four is that God is powerful. Powerful. Look at 2.1. We spent some time on this before, but it says, The scatter has come against you, man of ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. This is a direct assertion to Assyria. And it's essentially God saying, Look, scatterer, talking to Assyria. Look, you who love to scatter people, who love to destroy nations. The scatterer has come upon the scatterer. You see that the scatterer has become the one who is now scattered. By who? By the ultimate scatterer, God who has all power, who has all authority. When we think about the, the nation of Syria, it might, it might not really resonate in our minds how powerful they were in that world at that time. But think about it in these terms. Think about the United States of America and how powerful the United States of America is. Just think about how much money we have and how much money we put into our military and, and how important our military forces are. And think about the power of nuclear weapons question for you who's in charge of those things who has ultimate authority over the United States of America who has the final say do you think that God is anxious about what is happening in the world do you think that God is is worried and nervous about what might happen in the future brothers and sisters while we pray for justice while we hope and look forward to peace God knows exactly what's going to happen. And nothing will happen except by his sovereign decree. And that's exactly the message that Nahum, that God had through Nahum to the people of Judah. Now think if we were a nation that wasn't as powerful as the United States, but we were on the other end of their power. Think about being a small nation and another nation is coming to crush you. Like if the United States decided to crush another nation Uh, smaller and weaker like we just decided to crush Haiti for some reason and God would say to Haiti don't worry they won't destroy you unless I say so what would you say to that would you say no we're just going to do it anyway it's how the Assyrians were thinking but God corrects them and says you know who's actually powerful you know who the real scatterer is you know who the, the one who is that has the real authority It's not Assyria. It's me. It's God Almighty. He has the power of the nations and he holds the king's hearts in his hand like clay. He leads and guides them as he designs. That leads into point number five for our application is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Look at five, chapter five, I'm sorry, chapter um, two. We'll start in verse... 10. There's an image here. See if you can pick up the imagery that Nahum's using. He uses very distinct imagery here. Desolate, 
Desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all lions. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Lions. He's referring to the Assyrians as lions, young lions and lionesses, but there's one lion that God puts his finger on, and he says, this lion is the one I'm after. And following following chapters at the very end, what we'll see is that it's actually the king that God is putting his finger on, saying, look, this is the lion that I'm after, the one that feeds the young lions and the lionesses. And what's interesting about this historically is that lions were frequently depicted in Assyrian culture as power, as one who had power and authority. So for this reason, kings would actually hunt lions, and the very king that was in charge during Nahum's reign, that is Asur Banipal is his name, Asur Banipal, he was in charge, and the king of Assyria, historically, if you look at the things he wrote and the things that were written about him, he often compared himself to a lion. And one of the reasons that he did this is because he said that I've killed many lions with my bare hands as sport. But then the kings would then say, I am like a lion. And they would say, I have roared like a lion, or I am raging like a lion. So the connection here to to the king and the lion is that the king thinks that he is the king of the jungle, that he is powerful, that he has authority, that he has rule, and that whatever he says goes. But what does God say here? What does God in his sovereignty say to this king who says that he's a roaring lion? God simply asks the question, where's your lion den now? The place where you brought your prey? The place where you ate the nations up like they were just an evening meal? Where is your prey now? Where is your den now? At one point in time, you treated the world like your den. But now, where is your den? Nineveh. Nineveh was the den, but now it's no more because God said so. The king put himself at the place of God or over God, and God says, where is your lioness? Where is your young lion? Where is your den now? Verse 10, desolation, desolation. Why? Verse 13, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This teaches us something about power, authority, and in particular, pride. How do we present ourselves before God? Are we humble and contrite? Do we submit ourselves to the authority and will of God, or do we compare ourselves to God and say, whatever I say goes? Do we compare ourselves to the lion and think that we're the king of the jungle and that the world revolves around us? Or are we willing to submit to the sovereign rule of God, the authority of his word, and say, Lord, whatever you will, I take my refuge in you? It's very easy for us to live a self-centered life, a life like the king of the jungle, or the lion, but the reality is that the only connection that we have to the lion is the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And the only way in which we're lions, which we saw last week in the book, strong lions, is because we have the spirit of Christ in us. May we not be a people who has the spirit of the world and who seeks to exalt ourselves above God by not following his rule and his command. Point number six in application, God is victorious. God is victorious. We'll just look at verse 19 briefly one more time. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear of the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. We started talking about how this is the uh, final scene in the book of Nahum. And immediately after this, the curtain closes and the people erupt with a standing ovation, clapping with joy and exaltation. And it's because God is victorious. God is victorious. And brothers and sisters, while we're not waiting for a particular nation to be judged, while we're not waiting for Assyria to be judged, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the consummation of all things. We, we presently live in a kingdom that we cannot see with the eye, uh, physical eye. We see it with the eye of faith. But one day, there will come a time when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. There will be a day when every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth at the name of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day when every king and every kingdom and every nation is put in its place. And on that day, we will give a standing ovation before Christ our King who has taken death, who has defeated death on our behalf, who has raised from the dead and now promises us eternal life. There will be a day when we will be victorious over death, when we will stand in victory and we will applaud the judgment, the righteous decree of Jesus Christ who judges the nations with equity. And we will say, we're in awe and wonder of your justice. We're in awe and wonder of your judgments and of your decree. But until that final day, we continue to clap at this moment in time that we're rejoicing and we're grateful that he has defeated sin and death on our behalf, that our God is a victorious God. So we've seen the outline, the thematic outline. We've seen the application and we've looked at the history of Nahum, but we end on a note of compassion, that the Lord has been so compassionate to us that we do not receive vengeance and wrath because Christ actually took the wrath and vengeance that we deserve. We receive God's compassion, God's mercy, so that we might see him victorious and we might clap, that we might praise, that we might rejoice that he is a God who has defeated sin and death and he has promised us eternal life as well. So let's pray as we close and move into prayer and then we will break into small groups. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we're grateful for your word. We thank you for Nahum. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to apply what we've learned as we think about your character. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.